0: Blooming Lotus Yoga presents Drops of Nectar with Ramananda Mayi. In this podcast, we share the profound wisdom of yoga, tantra, and Vedanta, so that you may deepen your understanding of the Dharma and live a more fulfilling, awakened, and compassionate life. Uh, so tonight, um. We're going to continue with our talks on Sri Vidya to begin to give you a deeper understanding of the meditative tradition that we're taking part in. And here in Asia, and in, in Eastern philosophies in general, and meditative traditions all around, around the world, but particularly here in Asia all the meditation techniques, all the methods that are practiced have a corresponding philosophy that highlight the philosophical import of the practices and help lay out how the path of meditation is to be, to be understood, what its ultimate goal is, what the steps and the stages are, what the obstacles uh, to, to progress can be. And like this, when we practice um, meditation, that is the most important thing. But secondarily, learning a little bit about the philosophy back and behind the meditative tradition can be incredibly enriching. Often I describe this, that the practice is like being given the keys to a very you know, fast and beautiful car that can help you get to your destination very, very quickly. However, if you don't know what your destination is and you don't know the the, the road to get there, you don't know, but he's giving you a map, to show you where you are now and where you're headed, you just have a really fast car and you may just be driving around the block over and over and over again. And like this many people when they practice meditation because they don't understand the subtle nuances of the practice, sometimes end up going around in circles for a little bit longer than they should. Eventually everyone finds the highway but it takes a little bit of time to, to kind of get out of the get out of your little neck of the woods where you feel comfortable, and then start taking the direct path. So here in Asia, when we study meditation, there's so much brilliance that has been given to us in terms of the underlining philosophies back and behind the spiritual life. For example, if we were to study Buddhist teachings, we go to some Buddhist monastery, let's say, or some some Buddhist teachers teaching, we would learn how to. Practice meditation. They would teach us, you know, watch your breath, watch this, watch that. They would give you a very complete and full technique. However, it also tremendously helps for you to also understand the teachings of the Buddha, to understand the the uh, the. Eightfold Noble Path, to understand the Four Noble Truths, to understand um, the Law of Dependent Origination and the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. These are the four cornerstones of Gautama's teachings. And when we understand the philosophy behind it, we can then understand the depths of the practice in such a much more profound way. And likewise, not only in the Buddhist meditative traditions, but in the yogic meditation traditions, we also have great teachings that are available to us when we study the philosophy behind everything. However, there is one small caveat. Because something like Buddhism or other forms of meditation, like Taoist meditation, etc., have had primarily one founder and one kind of originator, one main central figure, There is not necessarily the same amount of variety that we find in the Vedic culture where there's been like hundreds if not thousands of different rishis, sages and great, you know, great enlightened beings and because they've come in every single generation and they have largely drawn upon each other's teachings, we have, you know, over 10,000 years of spiritual tradition, spiritual wisdom to work with and because of that there's a lot of variety and because of that sheer volume of variety as a beginner to understanding the yogic tradition it becomes a little bit overwhelming just how much is out there and sometimes when we begin to explore everything we begin to see wow there's a lot of people saying a lot of things and sometimes what they're saying don't always line up. So we find a lot more contradictions when we study yogic philosophy until we begin to get the hang of where everyone is, what their perspective is, what their camp is, what their philosophy is. And then once we kind of begin to group all these different philosophies, um, then we kind of have like like a real good entranceway into the into the yogic dharma so that we can understand how everything unfolds. And because the Sri Vidya is so old (laughs) like it is as old as the hills it's it's something that is so unimaginably old and some of the first references to the Sri Vidya occur in 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 the Rig Veda and the Rig Veda was pre-10,000 BC I mean this this is very very ancient stuff and we've had so many enlightened sages along the way that have given us and added to the Sri Vidya and because here because of the do. Diligence of time. So much of what we once had has been lost, and different teachers come in different ages and may enliven what was there in a slightly different way. Because the Vedic tradition is so vast, we have so many influences to draw upon, and the Sri Vidya in our generation is drawing upon two fundamental streams within the Indian Vedic tradition. One is the old Vedic tradition itself, and one is the relatively new Tantric tradition. It's only about a thousand years old. So within our body of practices, how we're practicing meditation now, maybe using mantra, maybe using self-inquiry, maybe using watching the gap within the breath. Some of these techniques are tantric, some of these techniques are Vedic. And understanding what's what and the overlap between them is a bit of a maze. So I'm gonna help guide you through that maze so that you have hopefully a clear understanding today. However, I make no promises, and there's a really good chance I'm going to lose a lot of you along the way. Because I'm taking a few risks today. I'm doing things a little bit more advanced. I know there's a lot of beginners in the room. So forgive me if I lose you. I'm going to try to make this as complete and integral as possible. And at the same time, I have people that are here for like five years, six years, and they're kind of getting bored of me talking about the same old thing. So I need to satisfy some of their their curiosities. So let's do the best we can. Now, philosophies in in Sanskrit are termed by the word darshana. Whenever we hear darshana, we we kind of get an idea we're talking about philosophy. And the Sri Vidya has three fundamental bases that we can use for our philosophical model. Whenever we need to deal with philosophy, particularly in Eastern tradition, there's always this trinity that comes into play. Each philosophy, each worldview, no matter what it is, always has to confront um, the condition of the individual, so what's happening to me, what's going on to, to the individual in this life, uh, what is the nature of phenomenon? What is the nature of the world? How does the creation work? What are the laws of creation? What is the individual's place in creation? And if we posit that there is a creation, it's also often positive that there must be some sort of creator, some being that created the world and created the individual, some source of our own existence that we need to ultimately begin to understand. So often the trinity of the individual the world, and what people call God, or the source of creation, whatever, you some people call it the universe, as you wish, Um, it really doesn't matter what we call it, but those three things always need to be addressed. The nature of the individual, the nature of the world, and the nature of God, and how these three factors correlate and what their relationship is to one another. This is the fundamental base of almost all philosophies, Eastern and Western. Now, the interesting thing is that we have three different ways of understanding this trinity. Um, so it's like three times three, as it were. The highest level is very hard to understand. And I often talk about it as the language of sages. You can't really get this view or this philosophy unless you've had really, really deep meditative experiences and, and or are already enlightened. So that this is the language and letting Buddhas talk amongst themselves when they're having conversations upon the nature of reality. Yeah, this one is called Ajatavada. This is a technical Sanskrit term. The Ajatavada is a philosophy that Sri Vidya practitioners can adopt that is basically negating all three of these factors. In this particular methodology, there is uh, such an emphasis on cultivating an awareness of the absolute, unchanging, eternal oneness that is the source of everything. It is the source of the individual, it is the source of the world and it's even the source of God itself or the universe or consciousness which created the individual and the world. There is this principle known as Brahman, which is the absolute reality. And this absolute reality is not bound by the typical Um, confines of time, space, or causality, which is what we call karma. It's not bound by karma, it's not bound by space, and it's not bound by time. And because it's not within the confines of the time-space continuum, within this view there's simply no admittance, there's just no validity from this standpoint that the creation actually even exists in the way that we think a creation should exist. And by this, it's very, very difficult to describe in words, but the very idea of creation or a creation posits that once upon a time for something to be created means that at some time prior to the creation, it did not exist. And therein is where we find the delight of how is it that this thing which is called life, which is existence itself, never was? How is it possible for something which is eternal, which has no boundaries of time, to have one time not existed and then all of a sudden come into being, come into existence? It it negates the, the very uh, fabric of the idea that something is real or something is permanent, something is eternal, the second you try to put a point somewhere in time where this thing began, this thing we call creation began. And this is very difficult for some people to understand, but because of this idea that the eternal is transcends, the absolute transcends time and space, it could not have actually been created. Because there was never a time where it did not exist, and not from anywhere it could have come from. Because if in this view, this Absolute is non-dual and is complete homogeny, complete oneness, there's no other thing it could have come out of other than its own self, which is eternal. And for this reason, an idea similar to this that basically addressed the nature of the Absolute and its transcendence of time and space, that we just say that that which is called creation is just a word. It has no fundamental meaning, it has no fundamental validity or no fundamental meaning of any kind. Well, when, when we talk about creation, we just simply say that it is an appearance that occurs within reality. But it was an, it's an appearance that was never created, never originated. It always has been and it always will be. There is never a time it began and never a time the world will ever end. And this is hard for us sometimes because everywhere we look we see life and death, things beginning, things ending. But from the absolute view, this simply cannot be the case. What we call the world is just simply consciousness, existence, which is eternal and permanent and has never been born and will never die. And because of this it is known as Ajata, unborn, uncreated. So this view is radically different than most other creation theories and most other views upon reality. This is typically reserved only for the jnana, non-dual approach of Sri Vidya. A a step down from that, because most people have a, a, a difficult time believing that there's no such thing as a creation, where all we seem to experience (coughs) is this thing called life, which seems to be a creation of some sort, we have another viewpoint which posits that the experiencer, the the perceiver of the world, the individual, originated as the primary cause of the creation. In this, I I consider this worldview like an inside-out model whereby the subjective experience of the individual is what is said to give rise to the the experience we call life. And in this view, we have a lot of motifs that discuss the mind-born nature of creation, how creation is actually just a projection within consciousness being projected within your own mind. And that which you see all around you, the people, the places, the events, the activity, All the different experiences that happen in your life are not external to you. They're very much just a mind-born creation that is born from your mind, but not your conscious mind, but the subconscious and unconscious levels of your mind that, based on the law of karma, is creating or reflecting, if you like that word, the the world around you. Yeah, this is a doctrine or a worldview that posits that the individual comes before the world, and that the entire world has its dependence upon the perceiver, the individual, the subjective inner experience. In this way, when we study these kinds of philosophies, of which there are numerous ones, what ends up happening is that the spiritual seeker is asked to reflect upon life and asked to reflect upon the three conventional states of consciousness. The waking state, the dreaming state, and the deep sleep state. And you begin to analyze, you begin to reflect upon what the characteristics of each of these states are the physical normal waking state is characterized by by the individual, our ego structure coming into contact with all sorts of people, places, events and all the different objects of the sensory world. We perceive them to be external to ourselves and we're constantly reacting to them. However, when we begin to analyze the dream experience which for the most part in western philosophy and western psychoanalytical uh, viewpoints, is largely disregarded as anything of real validity. Here in the Vedic tradition, the subjective experience of dream is very, very important source of investigation. Because when we look at the dream experience, we begin to see that in the dream experience, it's actually not that, that different than the physical experience. The ego is still there. Your ego structure is there. You're constantly in a state of reactivity. However, the objects that you're encountering, the people, places, events that you're encountering, aren't felt to be external to you, but are happening within your mind, within your own inner world, as it were. And that's really the only fundamental difference in between these two. However, when we analyze the deep sleep state, we find that the world completely dissolves. It ceases to be, temporarily, within the subjective inner experience. Do you reflect last night when you fell asleep, you you may have dreamt, you may not have, and when you entered into a state of deep sleep, you were not aware of your ego. There was no you there in terms of an ego structure. There was you as consciousness, there was you as the witness, as awareness, but not as an ego structure with likes and dislikes and an age and a name and any sort of personality structure, just pure, homogenous consciousness was there. And because you were there in your absolute, pristine, pure quality of just awareness itself, you weren't actually experiencing any phenomenon whatsoever, you were not coming into contact with inner objects or outer objects, and because of this you were in a state of non-reactivity the world for you did not exist. There was no events, there's no people, there's no places. There's actually not even a concept of time and space in a conventional way whereby you can say like, I was in such and such a place when I was sleeping and I felt like I was there for such and such a length of time. That experience of deep sleep is very close to the nature of the soul, of the atma, whereby it is not so bound and by the idea of time and space, it actually transcends the subjective experience of time and space in the relative way. way, your body was, you know, here in Bali, and it's left for seven hours or something like this. But your own personal experience, your own experience of that deep sleep state, wasn't really focalized in any space and the length of time you were there isn't very tangible in terms of minutes and hours and conventional ways of preceding time. So these types of reflections begin to help us see that really this which what I call the world, this which what I call the creation, subsides sometimes. It doesn't actually exist for me certain times of the day. Six, seven, eight hours a day, the world just simply does not exist. And then, for maybe one hour every night when you're in a your deep sleep state, the world as you perceive it is happening simply within you. And then, for only about half of your life, is the world that you're experiencing as an external phenomenon to you appearing to, to you. Yeah, and this is what we call the conventional <coughs> state of consciousness. However, once you begin to reflect in this way, you'll also begin to get certain hints that the world, as you currently perceive it, isn't actually necessarily the way it truly is. And in this philosophy, we're often encouraged to not trust the stimulus we're getting through the senses. And we're taught to find the world to be more of an appearance and slightly deceptive compared to what it actually is. Yeah. And we're encouraged to develop an idea or a framework, our mindset, that the world is more like a dream-like imagination or a dream-like creation, than it is a real, tangible, permanent, enduring reality of any kind. Because the, even though this isn't the ultimate truth, the ultimate truth is the providence of the theory of non-origination. Ajatavada, that is the highest, most absolute truth, but because spiritual seekers can't necessarily accept that view, we make one concession and we say, so long as you feel like you are bound, so long as you're experiencing negative thoughts and negative emotions, you feel like you're in a state of suffering, you feel separate from the world, you feel isolated from the world, you feel like a victim to the circumstances of the world, so long as you're seeking and yearning for truth, it, it helps you not to be so attached, to cling so deeply to the objects of the world if you release your idea of them having any real tangible essence, meaning that they're as solid and as material and as real as you currently believe them to be. This kind of worldview has often in the modern age been highlighted by quantum physics, which says that all of this, which we perceive as dense physical matter is actually just mostly just space and little pockets of very subtle matter called particles and things like this existing within this vast space. They've told us that which we perceive as physical is actually just energy. similar thing occurs here in this particular worldview. The other more conventional worldview that we can also adopt but isn't as highly recommended is known as the śrīśhti Drishti Vada. In this particular philosophy and those of this kind which are the vast majority of world views of world philosophies, most of uh, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, many Hindu creation theories, um, many world beliefs around the world, fall into this camp. And the basic idea is that creation came first, or the world uh, is the primary cause. And then only after the world has existed for some time did you, as the individual, somehow spring up within it. You will live for some time and then one day you will cease to be, but the world will continue without you. In this motif, most of the time there's a god, some sort of creator deity that created the, the world, this also works in the Big Bang theory. The scientific theories are very much from this standpoint, where there's just this big ball of energy and then exploded, and this happened in some distant trillions and trillions of years ago. And then here you are, three trillion years later. Here you've, you know, you kind of just come into being, you know, <laughs> and then you'll be here for some time, and then one day you'll, you'll fade away, and the world will continue without you. It's very commonsensical. This is what most of us believe because it just seems to make sense because everywhere we go we see things are being born and things die. We hear of all this history that happened before we were born, World War One, World War Two, and then this happened and that happened and there's these things in the distant past and we're moving towards this amazing technological future and things of this kind. It makes sense. And on some level it can work. However, for the purposes of the spiritual life, we discourage people from taking that at face value and prefer that the spiritual seeker works with, with the middle motif and if they're capable with the theory of non-origination. Ultimately, these are still all belief systems, they're all concepts, they don't hold any real validity because they're not the absolute truth, they're just ways of thinking about truth. However, it's good to know that these three camps exist and then to begin to get an idea of which camp is kind of more your forte. Once you understand which camp is kind of more comfortable for you, then you can take certain philosophical streams and utilize them to help you understand the practice of yoga and the practice of meditation. Because the creation first models are fundamental, we consider them fundamentally flawed because the basic standpoint that you will eventually have to reconcile is as you begin to explore consciousness and the nature of consciousness which is the work of a meditator, is you have to always come into contact with this idea or this understanding of what is the, the relationship between that which we call mind and that which we call matter. And really what is what are those things and how do they correlate? In modern yoga circles, we often talk about mind-body connection. But as you study the body-mind or mind and matter, whichever lingo you like to use, eventually you're going to have to come to a conclusion of which one came first. Is it the matter that supersedes mind or is it mind that supersedes matter? In the scientific, materialistic paradigm, matter triumphs over everything. And in these kinds of ideas, uh, you know, molecules and particles and and different chemicals combine together and to form these long strings of DNA and all these, this matter develops. And out of all these chemicals, somehow consciousness, you know, arises somewhere inside the matter of the brain and that is what you are, that's the basic scientific thing. Matters always seem to be first, and out of matter originates what we call consciousness or the mind. This is a materialistic paradigm, a scientific Western worldview for the most part. Here in Asia, many of the Eastern philosophies, it's completely reversed, because there's been such an intensive investigation into the nature of consciousness of so many millennia, that it has been understood that consciousness actually trumps, or or triumphs, or supersedes matter. And it's not so much that consciousness arises out of matter, but the opposite. The matter, the world, the creation, you, the events of your life, your, your mind, your body, arise out of consciousness. You know? And this entire material existence, this which we call the universe, the world, the cosmos, matter, the body, all originated out of consciousness itself. When we take that as the viewpoint and we go, okay, I feel more comfortable with that, we're in the middle camp. Yeah, because when you accept consciousness, is the source of matter, then all sorts of possibilities open up for you. And most of this is simply uh, based on meditative maturity and meditative experience, whereby there are certain times after lengthy, long periods of meditation, you will actually have the experience that you are not the body. You exist completely independent of this cage of flesh and blood that you so strongly identify and believe to be me, or I, but ultimately you are not the body. Believe it or not, you're not even that which you call the mind. You're just pure consciousness. And from this pure consciousness, this entire fabrication of the body-mind has emerged so that you can experience the, the, the magnificence of life and begin to discover the truth of your own existence and the source of your own existence. And this becomes the spiritual quest, the spiritual path to... Look into, to inquire, to discover, to realize the source of one's own existence. And this source goes by many names. We call it Brahman, which is the source and substratum of existence, the absolute, non dual, supreme consciousness itself. When we begin to inquire into the nature of Brahman, we begin to move to that first camp, the non origination model, whereby we say that Brahman was never born, was never created, has no origin because it always has been and always will be, and is very much here and now. And ultimately in, in the high Vedic teachings we even tell the spiritual seeker that that thou art, see you are that, you are Brahman, now you are unborn. Nice. <laughs> All right. So, having taken care of the the, the base of the fundamental base, we're gonna we're gonna keep on going. So, on the first date, we mentioned that there's actually within this kind of spiritual desire for liberation, there's two other camps: the dual camp and the non-dual camp. Now. In terms of practices and in terms of philosophies, there's some practices of yoga and meditation that are dualistic by nature and have a dualistic philosophy system. And (coughs) there are some that are considered to be non-dual because the practices and the philosophies behind them are of a non-dual nature. For those of us that studied the four paths of yoga, we understand that some practices are devotional, some practices are meditative, and even though in the general Vedic tradition we have bhakti yoga or the devotional yoga and uh, raja yoga, within the specific Sri Vidya tradition we have a devotional practice. Within the Sri Vidya tradition we have a very specific meditative practice that falls under the banner of raja yoga. When we practice Sri Vidya devotional techniques, w- these are difficult to teach to Westerners. So for the most part we find they don't translate over very well. So we typically kind of keep them at bay and we don't really discuss them because it takes a certain kind of um, inclination, a certain kind of history in your karma you need special hindu samskaras you need to have been born as a hindu in previous lifetimes for devotion to deities and goddesses and gods and things like this to be natural for you if not it's a little bit too forced i mean we're just a little bit more cautious about doing that because the whole devotional path requires names and forms we need to give the supreme creator create, create create the supreme deity, some name, some form by which we can worship it, because that's just the basic nature of devotional practices. That implies an inherent duality initially between the devotee and that which is being devoted to. In our particular camp, the object of devotion is Divine Mother. We're actually shaktas, meaning that we worship spirit in the form of the Divine Feminine. We don't think of as God the Father so much, a little bit, but more God the Mother. This is the main paradigm, and we feel like we're just God's children, but in the sense that we're like children of a goddess. Very, very nice if you have that feeling already. If you don't have that feeling already, then uh, for those of you that are a little bit agnostic, that you're kind of on the fence, like you believe, but you don't really know what to believe, and you don't know what to call what you believe, then you can think of the Divine Mother as Mother Nature. Yeah, so Mother Nature becomes the Devi, the Goddess itself. And if you just have supreme reverence for Mother Nature, uh, good enough. That can also be an excellent form of Sri Vidya devotional practice. But it's a little bit harder because then we have ceremonies and mantras, and we haven't developed ceremonies for Mother Nature in the same way as we have in ancient Indian culture. So for the most part, we don't discuss that so much. But if you like certain mantras to the Goddess, and certain chants to the goddess using the power of sound, this can help you. In terms of the meditative tradition, this is what we're more all about, particularly in this meditation retreat, practicing intense meditation, and you've learned some of the arparanayama techniques, you've, you've established a firm base of, of moral ethical conduct, so you're not speaking ill of others, you're, you're practicing non-violence, you're living with a lot of nobility and virtue in terms of your outer lifestyle, and then secondarily you're doing all the yoga techniques of, the, of self-discipline, asana, pranayama, you're doing the pratyahara techniques of yoga nidra and sense withdrawal through meditation, you're then practicing concentration on the gap in between the breath or um, or chanting mantra, or self-inquiry, and these all form the base of our meditative um, practice. So this is a form of Sri Vidya that is more um, meditative, more from the self-discipline school, where we work with chakras, we work with Kundalini awakening, etc, etc. For those within the the non-dual kind of framework, we also have a a wisdom-based practice, a jnana-yoga-based practice. I've described to you this, I've described this to you, and, and if you've been here before, probably a little bit, and, but I've done so in a very general way. I'd like to get a little bit more specific. For those of us practicing the devotional aspects of Sri Vidya, or like all of you now, the meditative aspect, we can use the, the creation first or the perception first, philosophies as the base, the philosophical base that informs our devotional and our meditative techniques. We can't really use the non-origination models, so long as we're doing these intense acts of heroic meditation using, you know, the chakras and Kundalini awakening, etc. It's better for us to use either the creation first motifs or if we accept it, the perception first motifs. For those that are in the non-dual camp, then, oh, for those of us that are in that camp, if we're practicing the devotional or the meditative components of Sri Vidya, the exact philosophy that we use is part of the tantric system of 36 tattvas. This uh, This is something that is from the tantric tradition. Sri Vidya has a Veda component and a tantric component, but because we're using the chakra model and doing chakra cleansing exercises, because we're doing things like yoga nidra, because we're doing visualization inside of yoga nidra, um, because the devotional practices that we practice involve tantric mantras and tantric style of rituals, then we use a tantric system for our philosophy that's actually the base of our philosophies, are the 36 principles of Tantra. You may not have heard those, I'm going to try to describe those to you a little bit today. Now for those that are practicing the wisdom-based aspect of Sri Vidya, we can use the perception first, or the non-origination models, yeah. and the exact philosophical base is known as Advaita Vedanta. So this is coming from the old school Vedic tradition where within the Veda, the Jnana Yoga teachings of the Vedas are termed as Vedanta. Within Vedanta, we have a lot of sub-schools of different ways of practicing Vedanta. We take what is known as the non-dual Vedanta or the Advaita Vedanta as the base of our Uh, self-inquiry practices. So what you learn today in terms of meditating using the technique of self-inquiry or asking the question, who am I? It's an old Vedic technique uh, from the non-dual school, the Advaita Vedanta school of the Vedas. Watching the gap in between the breaths, yes it existed in the ancient days in the Vedas, but it's more contemporary use has been emphasized in tantric circles. And many of the mantras, whenever we're using these very strong Bija mantras, aim, Reem, Shreem, things like these, these are more tantric uh, in nature. And the entire chakra model of you know, the seven chakras and the sounds and the colors and the shapes of the of the color, things Lily's been teaching a little bit in the mornings, I believe. All of that largely comes from the tantric, and more contemporary approach. So, we as Sri Vidya practitioners, I know this is a big maze to waddle through, but hopefully you're kind of beginning to see it. I'm just trying to explain on a very simple level, we're either using Advaita Vedanta or we're using the tantric system of 36 principles as our base. So, hopefully you're with me so far. Alright, I may have lost some of you, but hopefully you're with me. now. Even though I would love to teach you the 36 Tattvas of Tantra, our time is limited and 36 Tattvas is a lot to go through. To go through all these different principles and all of this when I've already lost half of you is a little bit challenging. But it's important to note that the system of the Tantric system of 36 Tattvas is based on an older model from another sage by the name of Kapila Maharshi who gave us a system of philosophy known as Samkhya. And within the Samkhya philosophy we have 25 principles. What the tantrics did is they took the old system of 25 principles known as Samkhya and then they added 11 more things for a total of 36. What I'm going to do today, and I'm not going to go through all 36 because we need the foundation of the original 25 first. And once we have those original 25, then maybe at a later time I can discuss the next 11 that comprise all 36 tattvas. The usefulness of studying samkhya is because samkhya is the philosophical base of Raja Yoga outside of Sri Vidya. If we study Bhagavad Gita, the teachings of Krishna, if we study Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, if we study Ayurveda, we'll see that all three of those approaches use Samkhya as the base of their particular exploration of the techniques that they advocate. So let's go through that again. Bhagavad Gita mentions Samkhya. Patanjali decided in his Yoga Sutras, decided not to develop a new system of philosophy Use the existing model that was there before in the system of Samkhya, and people that follow Ayurveda, natural medicine, and the yogic tradition also use Samkhya as the base of their healing modalities. And Samkhya is in the dualistic school. Yeah? The, the base is dualistic, and you can take creation first, perception first, doesn't really matter. The graduation will be towards moving towards the middle. So, having said that, and hopefully I'm still got most of you, Samkhya, the philosophy of Samkhya, the first twenty-five of the thirty-six principles, was developed by a great sage named Kapila Maharshi. Now, Kapila Maharshi is absolutely brilliant, brilliant sage. We know that Krishna referenced him in the Bhagavad Gita. And the Bhagavad Gita was composed about 3000 BC. Bhagavad Gita is about 5000 years old. So at the time of Krishna, Krishna is seeing that Samkhya philosophy was being practiced around him and decided to elaborate in the Bhagavad Gita about, uh, about the Samkhya philosophy, the Samkhya theory, which means that it must have been there before Krishna. So Samkhya philosophy of Kapila is at least five thousand years old. Much, much older. So wonder of wonders. We're gonna be studying something that's like five thousand years old plus. You know, it's amazing that whatever realization he had was able to endure the test of time and five thousand plus here years later here we are talking about it. Here we are using it as the base of our yoga practice. Almost all schools of yoga around the world use samkhya as their base. For those of you that read autobiography of a yogi and you learned Kriya Yoga, that's their base. They use samkhya yoga as the base of their philosophy. The guru, the, the teacher of Yogananda, a great sage by the name of Yukteswar, he wrote a beautiful book called The Holy Science, first chapter of samkhya philosophy. He describes all 25 principles and in-depth, very worthwhile read, Holy Science, for those of you that like all this yogi stuff. Um, And by Sri Yukteswar. It gives you a very, very concise and clear understanding of Samkhya philosophy. Now let's begin to see what Samkhya really looks like. Samkhya. And it's 25 principles that basically outline the various principles of existence, and the order of creation, how creation came into being, how it is sustained, and ultimately how it will return back to its source. In this particular model, because it's an inside-out model, there's a gradual evolutionary theory that develops here. But because most of Samkhya is inside-out, everything is also deeply associated with the condition of the perceiver, the yogi. Or the yogini. So the creation and the enfoldment of creation happens through the subtle energy body of the yogi or the yogini. Wonder and wonders. You become the source of the creation, and the creation dissolves within you as, as you move towards, uh, towards enlightenment. So let's begin to have a look at how the, the system of samkhya outlines the creation and your place within the creation. The first principle is is that of spirit itself. The fundamental, the highest principle within Samkhya philosophy is known as Purusha. Purusha basically can mean consciousness. Often we just translate it as spirit. That which some people consider to be God. Now the interesting thing about Samkhya philosophy is that it has two kind of standpoints the old Samkhya philosophy of Kapila, the really, really ancient one, was not theistic. There was never a mention of God, there was never a mention of Ishvara, Purusha or spirit or what some people call the self, was seen to be the ultimate principle. Only later when Krishna began to discuss Samkhya philosophy did he bring in a more devotional tone and a more theistic tone, whereby he, Krishna, equated Ishvara with Purusha. God and Purusha kind of began to be the same. So the interesting thing about Samkhya is whether one is theistic, they believe in God, then God can be superimposed upon Purusha. But if one does not believe in God, there's no need to invite God into these 25 principles if one doesn't choose to. So it's a very interesting, very flexible philosophy, we can say. So if somebody is a believer or a non-believer, it doesn't matter. Yeah? So so this is something to take note of. The second principle is known as prakriti. It is matter. And here we have the fundamental duality of the samkhya philosophy. We have spirit and we have matter. We have consciousness and we have cosmic energy. We have these two distinct polar pairs. One is unmanifest, the other is manifest. One is formless, the other is form. Uh, all all that which is, um, you, what is unique to one is the contrary of the other. It's like day and night. They are like male and female, we can say. Now, the fun, if there's nothing else you remember from this lesson today about Samkhya, just remember Purusha and Prakriti, spirit matter. The basic, the basic, basic foundation of the philosophy of Samkhya is that currently spirit has become enmeshed in matter, has become trapped in matter. And the entire work of a yogi is to distill spirit from matter, consciousness from matter, to separate, not to unite. Purush and Prakriti in your current condition are united and that's the fundamental problem. Consciousness has forgotten its true nature and has become identified with matter, the body-mind. And because it's become identified with the body-mind, it believes itself to be something which it is not. And this is the fundamental ignorance. This manifests in our day-to-day life in endless ways because the body is giving all sorts of different impulses and stimulus, sometimes we feel like I am young, sometimes I'm old, sometimes I have a lot of energy, sometimes I'm very tired, sometimes I'm hungry, sometimes I'm satiated, sometimes I'm thirsty, sometimes I feel quenched, sometimes I'm healthy, sometimes I'm sick. The body is giving all sorts of extremes and within it the body is never at equilibrium. The body is constantly agitated, restless, just trying to hang on for dear life, but it can't because the nature of body is to come into existence, sustain itself for some time, develop disease and ultimately fade away and die. But that is not what you are or who you are by any stretch of imagination, but you believe yourself so strongly to be the body. This is your sense, I am the body. I am, I am the body, this is my only experience right now so of, of this flesh and blood container, and I am this. And if anybody ever insults the body, oh my gosh, you get so upset, No, you know. Somebody says the body is ugly, the body is fat, the body is unattractive, you freak out. Can't handle I, of course I'm not this. You know, of course I'm not what you say I am. I'm this beautiful, glorious, wonderful thing, you know, called the body. Of whatever way, we're doing endless things to try to preserve this identification with the body. Now, the other component is the mental component, the mind component, whereby because we have lost awareness of what we truly are, we believe ourselves to be the contents of the mind, which are thoughts and emotions in all these conceptual ideas about who we are and even though that sounds very abstract on a very day-to-day practical level, it manifest is this, this endless identification with these transitory mental emotional states. One day I'm happy, next day I'm sad. One day I'm beautiful, next day I'm ugly. One day I'm wise, another day I'm dull. I'm this, I'm that, I'm beautiful, I'm ugly, I'm young, I'm old. I'm so many different dualities. I'm angry, I'm patient, I'm frustrated, I'm peaceful, I'm restless, I'm, I'm calm. So much stimulus is going on inside the mind and we're constantly self-identifying with all of these things, where in reality you are none of these changing, fluctuating mental emotional states. You are just pure consciousness and upon the field of pure consciousness, this ignorance of your true nature has developed and you believe yourself to be this limited mortal being that is going through this extreme experience of duality whereby you find no peace and you're suffering and you're struggling to find some answer to your 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 quest for lasting happiness, lasting satisfaction. But wherever you go, whatever you do, you cannot find eternal peace, eternal happiness and because you're struggling to find happiness in a permanent way the teachings of some can become very relevant for us because they are here to help us end this fascination with the body mind and help us find ways of separating the identification of consciousness with matter that's the basic motif here what happens is out of matter, out of the most subtle forms of matter, when they talk about matter here, they're originally not talking about dense physical matter, they're talking about ultrafine matter, subatomic, energetic, molecular, quantum energies. They're talking about ultrafine matter that then densifies as it goes through other stages. As matter begins to come into existence, as it were, as it exists and as it's vibrating, it also has a fundamental intelligence known as buddhi. This is the next evolute within the Samkhya philosophy. Energy, cosmic energy, prakriti, is intelligent. Prana, cosmic energy, which is born of prakriti, has its own innate wisdom, its own innate intelligence. This is known as the intellect, but it doesn't mean like the Western word intellect, like intellectual. It's like the higher aspects of, of the mind, the higher aspects of, of the, the capacity to know. It's more like intuitive knowing, innate knowing, rather than just like mental uh, knowing, a cognitive knowing through thinking. It's kind of like a deeper, inner, more cosmic type of intelligence that the buddhi is. Because the entire model is inside out, it's very helpful to understand this not only as a, like a big, large universal process, but a very much a very personal process whereby the very fabric of the body-mind originates from consciousness, enters a state of vibratory essence known as Prakriti, and begins to slowly densify to create in every single moment. Moment after moment, this creation is taking place. The creation and dissolution of the cosmos is happening not as one big bang that happened trillions of years ago, but it's happening in perpetually as consciousness shapes matter, as matter then uh, has its own way of organizing, of assembling, in order to create all the different elements of your existence. From your highest wisdom, what we call your buddhi, originates the sense of I-ness, what we call the ego, the ahankara. And this ego structure is the root of all evil, third of all problems. It is what makes us forget our true essence and it gives us this limited idea that I am the body and mind. And this sense of limitation, the sense of individuality, the sense of separateness and distinctness is what then shapes the rest of the body mind. From it arises what we call the mind itself. And this is termed manas and the the manas is the thinking mind. It's the conceptual mind. It's the egoic mind. Sometimes we talk about the manas as like the lower mind and we talk about the buddhi as like the higher mind. Yeah, and within you there's this constant battle taking place between the higher impulses of your intellect or your buddhi and the which kind of remembers its divine nature and is helping propel you towards spirituality and realization and the lower egoistic mind which is constantly seeking pleasure and trying to avoid pain and seeking egoic sensory gratification of all kind and is seeking happiness from the outside in. From this mind, the mind, this is where the mind-matter interaction plays out in a very significant way. It's said then that the mind sculpts for itself, the energy, the inherent intelligence of the, the cosmic energy, Prakriti, eventually gets to a place where it assembles for itself after the mind has been born, a body that is made up of different organs. And we talk about five bodily organs that help the mind, fulfill its desires, fulfill its desire to experience the external world, the world of the senses. And for this it needs to move around, and for this it develops legs. It also needs a way to um, manipulate the objects that it comes into contact with. And for this it fashions itself, arms. It wants to express itself in its desires for this. It makes a mouth and a tongue which to communicate, it needs to also assimilate nutrients in order to sustain its existence, and also needs to shape for itself a digestive tract that ultimately eliminates that which is brought in, and it also seeks to procreate and generate more of itself. And for this, it forms the general organs. So the five organs are the hands, the feet, the mouth, the anus, and the reproductive organs. Of course, we have more organs than just these five, but these are just like the basic framework of how the mind creates the the body for the purpose of coming into existence in the phenomenal relative world from the mind also are developed all of the faculties of the sense so the mind shapes the eyes shapes the ears shapes the skin shapes the nose and shapes the mouth or the tongue and because of these sense faculties the the the, the individual comes into contact with all sorts of sensations from the outside world as it projects this illusionary world made of its own mind essence to be the experience that we call life and all the people, places of life we're constantly receiving stimulus from what appears to be the outside in and we're receiving constantly sensory input and we hear things we taste things we touch things we smell things and we see things these are the five sense faculties, the sensations that we come into. And then, because we're coming into contact with the sensory phenomenon, we then give shape to all the objects of the creation, which are said to be made up of the five great elements earth, water, air, fire, and space, all suspended within space. Things that are solid are said to be earth, things that are, are liquid are said to be water, things that are gaseous, air, and things that have temperature and heat. Everything's made up of all of them. But some predominance of one element will tend to, to, to outweigh the other elements, and then we come into contact with diverse phenomena. And this is the essence of the Samkhya philosophy it's an inside out model whereby, in many ways, that which you perceive to be the external world is nothing but a reflection of your own energy, of your own desires, of your own karma, because it is this entire structure of body-mind and what we call the inner instrument, which is composed of the factors of the mind, the ego, and the intellect, the inner instrument, antakarana, it's called, the kind of like the inner world that gives rise to, uh, to the body. <coughs> you know, gives rise to everything and it's to this uh, entity that karma accumulates. Yeah, most of the problems originate from the ego structure but they're experienced deeply through the mind because it's the mind that has all the reactivity. It's the mind that constantly is embodied with um, qualities and the constant reactivity to pleasure and pain and it's the mind that's generating karma through its reactivity. The entire objective of yoga practice is ultimately to realize that your purusha but you can't actually do that until you awaken the higher mind or the buddhi. Therefore, all typical raja yoga practices are designed to activate the higher mind, the buddhi. This part of you, that senses truth, that has the intuitive capacity to grasp your true essence. So, all of these meditation practices help us stimulate our intellect, our buddhi, which is the storehouse of the quality of discernment. The buddhi has some qualities. One of their, its main qualities is known as viveka, which means the discernment. The ability to distinguish the real from the unreal, the truth from the untruth, the appearance from the reality. And right now, because the buddhi isn't fully activated inside of your organism, you're confused. And because you're confused, you suffer. The entire objective is to end the process of suffering by removing the ignorance, the confusion, as to what your true nature is. And for this, yogis will do countless techniques. Many, many techniques have been developed in the Raja Yoga schools, whereby we can tame the mind, begin to work with the manas, and elevate it. And through a gradual system of purification, again, non, it's a dualistic system. So through a gradual method of purification, what's happening here is step by step, we're going on a return journey from the elements all the way back, step by step, up kind of this rung, as it were, all the way back up to realizing our true essence as spirit embodied. Purusha itself. This archetypical journey back to our source can be paralleled to the archetypical journey through the chakras. So it is possible, it's a little bit loose but quite close actually, to bridging the gap between the tantric theory of the chakras with Samkhya. It's actually quite easy, whereby we can create a total correlation between the principles of Samkhya with the chakra system. Spirit is all of this, if we think about it in terms of the inner experience of the yogi, can be mapped out to the chakra system. of purusha is identified as the essence of the seven chakra. Spirit is said to resign at the crown of the head within the chakra theory. Matter, or prakriti, is said to be at the level of the third eye, the sixth chakra. And there's so much symbolic content there the, the sixth chakra has for its main symbol this two-petal lotus, but also which represents the number two, which is the essence of Prakriti. It's a dualistic paradigm of the cosmos, and also this triangle within it. This triangle is composed of three qualities of nature, three qualities of matter, three qualities of energy, or, or prana, which are sattva, rajas, and tamas. These are the three qualities of Prakriti, it's very explicit in the Samkhya philosophy that energy or matter has positive energy, negative energy and this neutral energy we call Rajas, this dynamic energy we call Rajas. Yeah. Also the Om symbol is there, Om is the mother of creation, Prakriti is, is deified oftentimes as being a feminine force, whereas Purusha is a masculine force. Prakriti is form, Purusha is formless. So by the time evolution happens through the chakra system here, as we densify into the physical body of the first chakra, we go through all these steps, all these stages. The intellect is associated, it's loose, but can easily be associated with the level of the Shuddhi chakra. The higher intelligence that awakens the Anandamaya kosha, the bliss body. When you're in the higher states of vibration where your intellect has been fully awakened, you have access to incredible altered states of consciousness that are very, very enjoyable, full of the bliss of that reflects the bliss of Brahma. The ego structure is centered at the heart level. Sometimes some people say that the Heart is the seat of the soul. But one interesting observation the great sage Ramana Maharshi said is that whenever anybody is asked, who are you, they typically take their finger and say, It's me, I. And always we point to ourselves here. We don't go I. We don't go I, we don't go I. Hamkara is rooted inside the heart, and to break through the knot of the heart is the work of the of the kundalini process a little bit more to that but I'll just keep going <laughs> So I still have you which is a miracle I thought I would have lost you a long time ago so thank you um, the, the third chakra, the manomaya kosha, the mental body associated with the manas, the mind And then we have to compound a lot of the other ones together at the level of the second chakra, because the second chakra is the prana maya kosha, the etheric body, the subtle body, the dream body, the astral body, which is fashioned for itself, not just physical organs, but our dream body. When you're dreaming and you're having experience in the dream state in your energy body, you have some hands are there, You're coming to contact with inner senses and you have some faculties that are there that are perceiving inner sounds, inner sights. So the first actual experience is not of the creation of the material body, but the the soul fashions for itself, as it were, an energy body first, a dream body, a pranamaya kosha a sukshma sharira, sometimes we call it a subtle body, and then from the subtle body everything densifies into gross physical matter, which is at the level of the first chakra, which is the, the anamaya kosha, the physical body, yeah, which is made up of the five great elements. So this is one model that we can use in order to try to understand some of this. And then the entire return journey is to go back to our source. So for most Raja Yoga practices, the entire methodology is the awakening of Kundalini through the system known as Sat Chakra Beda. Sat Chakra means the six chakras, oh no, seven chakras. Sat Chakra Veda, seven chakra piercing. As the Kundalini awakens, it is said to go through every single one of the chakras and burn through or pierce through um, each chakra, releasing all of the negative karmas that are there, all the last residue of ignorance as it traverses from one chakra into the next until it finally merges at the crown of the head. Now, this return journey is also a return journey up through the realizations or the steps and stages of the to philosophy. We need to develop mastery over the senses. We need to gain mastery over our body organs. We need to develop masteries over our sense faculties. We need to develop mastery over our mind. We need to inquire into the source of the ego structure itself. We need to develop the intellect. And then, ultimately, we'll be able to harness the power of the intellect which is really what Samkhya is designed for, so it could intuitively comprehend its true nature as Purusha, not as Prakriti. And that's where some of the fundamental confusion arises, because currently Purusha and Prakriti, spirit and matter, are are bound together, intertwined. The buddhi believes itself to be what it is not, we need to teach the buddhi, the intellect, to discern what is spirit and what is matter, what is consciousness and what is energy. So once this separation between purusha and prakriti has occurred, the buddhi can identify itself with what it truly is, which is purusha, which is just pure consciousness. And then it can peacefully live within the world of prakriti. Yeah. So you can still have a body, you can still have all these experiences, but you won't be doing so from a place of misidentification, fundamental ignorance of what you really are and how everything works on the ultimate absolute level of reality. So this is Samkhya and the chakra model. For those of you that really like this stuff, not all of you do, but some of you do, we can also take this Samkhya theory and allow it to integrate into the Sri Yantra. For us, as Sri Vidya practitioners, we have a sacred symbol known as the Sri Yantra that has encoded within it all the secrets of the Vedas. And the way that we do this is that the inner triangle, the inner dot, is a symbol of Purusha, whereas the inner uh, uh, triangle is the symbol of Prakriti or matter. The inner dot is Shiva, the triangle in tantric terms is Shakti. In Samkhya terms, Purusha is the center point, and Prakriti, or matter, is the first evolute of creation and is symbolized as a triangle. The next circle of eight triangles is the level of the intellect. The next layer of uh, ten triangles is the ego structure, the next layer of ten, the outer ten triangles, is the mind, the fourteen triangles, the ring of fourteen triangles are the sensations that one experiences, the ring of the circle of eight lotus petals is associated with the sense faculties, and the sixteen petal lotus is the bodily organs, and then the circle that surrounds it is the akasha, the space, whereas the four gates of the yantra are the four elements, and together the circle and the four gates make up the five elements, the five great elements of nature. So this entire philosophy has been encoded in symbolic terms, not only in the chakra model, but also in the Sriyantra itself. You know, it's a bit of a stretch at some places to find the exact correlations, and it's a little bit forced because, as I was trying to tell you, Samkhya isn't exactly Sri We need to add 11 more principles to make up the 36 model system of 36 Tattvas, and when we got that, then we can do a very, very elegant superimposition of the 36 Tattvas because that's what that's this, the, the Samkhya philosophy is a little bit forced upon the Sri that I found. You can much easily do it with the 36 model of tetras, But that's the base. That's the base. Um, so I'm sure there's a lot of questions, I imagine. But you can't talk, so I'm very grateful for that. Because <laughs> I'm sure our heads would be spinning with all these questions. So I'm going to close it for now. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode. And we invite you to visit www.blooming-lotus-yoga.com backslash Drops of Nectar to learn more through Ramananda's books, articles, online courses, or by attending retreats. May you be happy, peaceful, and free.